It's wonderful to be with you here this morning. It's uh, tremendous to share with you uh, time together, communion, singing, uh, fellowship. It's wonderful to uh, be part of uh, you guys again. And great to see some of the guys who came on our big summer camp with crew. Uh, it's wonderful uh, to be here this morning. I'm going to ask God for help. I need it. We all need it. The technology is going to need it as always uh, in churches. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this time together, for being here as we open your word and as we share communion and sing. Help us now to understand, but more than that, to live out your word as we look at it now. Amen. I'm going to see if this button does something to that, and if it doesn't, Kieran will be a a saviour hero once again. There we go. What a winner. Uh, Change. Change isn't something that people love. People don't like change. We don't like it when our local IGA or little shop changes where the milk is. Little things like that. We don't like it when the packaging on our favorite chocolate bar changes. I find that kind of discombobulating. One of the strangenesses of the last two years that has, as we heard earlier, makes us weary is just the amount of change that has gone on. Churches, let's be honest, can be places that are hard to change. I'm an Anglican. There's an old joke that, uh, you know, uh, how many Anglicans does it take to change a light bulb? To which they said, change? It's, it's hard to change sometimes as churches. We don't like change. But is that always true? We like to change our clothes with a, a, a freshening up our wardrobe. We'd love a new bathroom or kitchen. We want the change. We love watching TV shows where someone has a 48-minute makeover and they, they're really changed or a house gets changed in 24 hours Come to think of it, actually, we slightly like change. It's how the process is done. It's the process of change I think we don't like. In today's true story from the Bible, there's a bunch of change in it. And the process is anything but smooth. And we'll see that God is all in the business of change. Uh, And like sandpaper on wood, the process won't be smooth, but the end result will be. And it all kicks off when Joseph is hanging out with his brothers, and they're hanging out in Egypt. These are the 12 brothers who are the sons of Jacob. Jacob's nickname was Israel. So why are the literal children of Israel hanging out, not in Israel, but in Egypt? Well, for Joseph, it's a different answer than the other 11. Uh, Joseph, earlier in life, was bullied by the others, and depending on your reading of the story, he slightly deserved it. And as part of their bullying, they shoved him down a well. But then they worked out, hey, wait a minute, rather than shoving him down a well, we could actually sell him into slavery. So, So he gets sold into slavery and taken off to Egypt. Now, as luck would have it for Joseph, lots of things end up happening to him that he ends up uh, being prime minister in Pharaoh's government. Joseph becomes the kingpin, the big cheese, the number one boss. Joseph, the prime minister, also knows that there's going to be a famine. So he stores up seven years worth of grain. That's how Joseph gets to Egypt, one of the children of Israel. Now, as unluck would have it for the other 11 brothers back in Israel, with their father, Israel, there's a famine. Now, when there's no food, where do you go? The supermarket. 
but there's no woolies or coals, so they have to go off to Egypt. So they pack their bags and go. Uh, Ten of them, though, set off. They leave Benjamin behind. And they head off uh, to Egypt. And when they get there, they ask for the grain. They bow down to the prime minister. And they say, dear prime minister, please can we have some grain? Now, you think at that moment, Joseph, who's been there already, become prime minister, would say, aha, it's me, Joseph, your brother. Ta-da! And that'll be the end of the story. But the story carries on. Because Jacob, the father, nicknamed Israel, he had, he had more than one wife. He had, he had four wives, in fact. And within the four, there were kind of little gangs, little favorites. So within the 12 sons, there were special friendships depending on who your mum was. It's a bit like uh, at school when there's, you know, you're all in the same class, but there's four, there's four factions, and so you might have a special friendship with someone in your faction for sports carnival or, sw- or the swim meet or whatever it is. And so Joseph, whose mum was Rachel, just to put it in, she, she was the, like, the real pretty one that, that Jacob wanted to marry first time, and it all went a bit wrong. Uh, and Joseph had a brother, uh, Benjamin. They were the two children from Rachel. And Rachel was Jacob, the dad's favorite wife. Favorite wife, not normally a thing you talk about much in school, in, in church. Uh, and uh, so it's a bit strange to our ears. But because Rachel, the favorite wife, had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, Joseph has already, as far as Jacob was concerned, has already died. Uh, sold off to, you know, he's dead. Ripped apart by a wild animal. And so letting Benjamin go, the other son from his favorite wife, was out of the question. No way he's going to Egypt. I can't lose both of them. And so Benjamin's not there. Only 10 of them are bowing down asking for the grain. So Joseph, speaking all in Egyptian with kind of subtitles on, he postpones his big reveal. And he says to the 10, you've got to come back with your 11th brother, with Benjamin. Don't come back unless you've got him. So off they trek back to Israel the place, and Israel, the person, their father Jacob, nicknamed Israel. And on the way home, they opened their sacks to look at the grain that they had just bought from Egypt. And they find in those sacks that all the silver coins are back there. Wow, this prime minister of Egypt's been real generous. He's given them back their money. Well, they pick up Benjamin, 10 go back, 11 now head off to Egypt, This time, with all 11 brothers there, Joseph tells them, Hey, I'm your brother. God did this all along. Actually, not quite. He still doesn't tell them. The story carries on with another plot twist. Uh, Yeah, Joseph's so excited to see them, he weeps. But then they have a big feast. Now, at that feast, remember, four wives to Jacob, nicknamed Israel, Benjamin and Joseph, they're they're real brothers. The rest are all half-brothers. They're close buddies. So at this feast, Benjamin gets five times the portions. And now we come to today's story. These 11 brothers, they pack their bags. They've got 11 sacks full of grain. That's the recap. Now we know where we've been. We can now know where we're going. And it all kicks off in verse 1 of chapter 44. Have a look at chapter 44. Crack it open if you haven't got it. Page 30, page 36. And we're going to have a look at this story together and see what it is that God is going to do as he changes things. So it starts in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, Hey, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, that's the grain, and put each man's money in the top of his sack. 
Same as before, he gives them the grain and the money back. But this time, the second time, there's a plot twist. Joseph has a plan, a plot, an idea to see if he can reveal whether or not they really have changed from the 11 mean brothers who stuck him down a well and pretended he was dead and sold him into slavery. So verse 2, here's his plan. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the top of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And the steward did as Joseph told him. So a trap is set. It may be at work, you have a favorite mug, or at home, you've got a favorite mug. We don't like change after all, which is a little disgusting when it comes to crockery. But he he says, hey, look, my favorite mug, the silver one, stick it in the youngest one. That's Benjamin. Stick it in his sack. Joseph then tells the steward what to say in verses 4 and 5. And when they barely left the city... You know, if it was happening here in Cottesloe, they've kind of got to Mosman Park and he, he sends the, steward, the servant out and tells them, what, tells them what to say. And this is what happens. Uh, this is what he says in verse four and five to the brothers. Hey, you lot, the, the master's silver cup is missing. His favorite mug is gone. He's come to make his cup of tea. Where is it? You have repaid good. We gave you the silver back with evil. Isn't this, why have you stolen the silver cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Does he not indeed use it for divination? You've done wrong in doing this. Well, the 11 brothers, what? No one likes to be falsely accused. So the 11 brothers stand up for themselves. They ask, why would we steal anything? They even brought back the silver from the first trip so that they could pay for the corn. They're so confident that they haven't stolen the silver cup. You know, it's probably in the dishwasher. You know, sometimes you forget to empty it out and then the next morning... They're so confident they put their lives on the line. Have a look at verse 9. Should it be found with any of your servants, that's the brothers, let him die. Moreover, the rest of us will become your Lord's slaves. They're so sure, these 11 brothers, that they're willing to die. So sure they're not in the wrong. A life is on the line. These same 11 brothers who are happy to dispense of their brother Joseph's life down a well and in slavery, they're now willing to die at the hand of Joseph and be his slaves. It's a massive change in these 11 young men. Well, they lower their sacks, they reveal one by one, ah, the the grain is there, and ah, the silver coins are back. What a surprise. One by one, there's no cup until eventually they get to Benjamin, the favoured brother of Joseph, whose mum was Rachel, the favourite of the four wives of Jacob, nicknamed Israel. And whereas when Joseph was put down the well, they tore his clothes to make it look like he'd been ripped to shreds by wolves, they now tear their clothes to show that they now must die, one of them. Well, they head back to Joseph's house, tail between their legs, silver cup found in the precious Benjamin sack, life on the line, And when they get there, Judah gives a speech. He's the one to speak up of the 11 brothers. It's the longest speech in all of Genesis, verses 18 down to 34, with a little interruption. It's the longest speech in all of Genesis. And Judah starts by recapping the toing and froing. Ten of us came down. He said, no, we went back up. We got the 11th. The 11th came down. And recaps the whole thing. And whereas it was a a coat that got them in trouble the first time, it's now a cup. 
and they reveal it's Benjamin who had the cup in it, and now, and now Judah says this. Have a look at verse 30, just at the end of the speech. We'll read four or five verses of it to kind of capture some of what's going on. Now, Father, now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life, Judah's life, uh, so Jacob's life, is bound up with Benjamin's life, when, when, when Jacob sees that the boy's not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, the place of the dead. For your servant became surety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I'll bear the blame on the side of my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant, uh, Judah, remain as a slave to my Lord in the place of the boy, Benjamin, and let the the boy, Benjamin, go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father, uh, Jacob, if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. It's the longest speech in all of Genesis, but also the strangest by who is telling it? Judah. Judah is offering his life in the place of his half-brother, Benjamin. Judah is doing it. Judah! It's a complicated story, but let's tell another one. There's a girl called Tamar. Tamar married the oldest of three brothers. He died. So as was custom to keep her secure and safe, she then marries the second brother, who also dies. And then when the father refuses to let her marry the third brother... She dresses up and acts like a prostitute and sleeps with the father. Apparently the father's the kind of person who's happy to sleep with prostitutes. Now, that daughter-in-law of the father's two deceased sons is then turns out to be pregnant. And the father is outraged at this. How dare you, the widow of my two sons, be pregnant when you're not yet married? And then she reveals, this girl Tamar, she reveals... Actually, the, the child is yours because I dressed up like a prostitute and that's how I'm pregnant because you are happy to sleep with a prostitute. The girl's called Tamar and the father was Judah. The prostitute sleeping, daughter-in-law wanting to kill. He says, I'll kill you by the fact that you're now pregnant. He then changes his mind when it turns out it's his son. The prostitute sleeping, daughter-in-law killing, son of Jacob. He is now the one giving the speech confessing that he's done wrong and that he's now saying we're guilty and that I will stand in his place, that I will be a slave in the place of Benjamin offering to die for another. It's Judah giving the speech. There is a massive change in Judah. But we don't, we don't like change. But God is in the business of change. We may not like it, but God does, and we need it. And amazingly, with Judah, God makes Judah more like God, holy, confessing wickedness, hating sin, standing in the place of others, but also more truly like Judah. More like Judah, more like his true self. It's an amazing miracle that God does in his people, that he both makes us more like one thing, God, but also more truly unique, more like ourselves. From not caring about what God thought to seeing guilt before him, from wanting, from having hatred and and, uh, not caring about others to now standing in the place of others. 
It's the same sort of change that God is working in us too. For those of us who call on the Lord as our refuge and strength, he is working a change in us like he did with Judah. He will move us from who we were. Sure, maybe not prostitute sleeping with daughter-in-law wanting to kill kind of guy, but from who we were, full of hatred and wickedness and not caring about sin, to who we will be in eternity. And he's changing us on that journey. At first for me and for, for some of us here, it was quite a dramatic change when I first met Jesus. It was fun in, a, in about one month while I was at uni, changing my life. Uh, habits gone overnight, new habits built up. The Bible became a joy to read. Church became a delight. My life was under control. But since then, it's, since that one month, it's just been much more of a slog. <laughs> but reading the Judah story, we realize that it will take time. There may not be any more dramatic moments Judah's transformation seems to come out of nowhere. He doesn't seem to have in the book of Genesis an aha moment. It just took time. Revealed here now his new character when Benjamin's life is in danger. So if, like me, you're resistant to change, still, again, more, or reluctant to change, or exhausted of change, we can look at what God did to Judah And know that our resistance, our reluctance, our exhaustion will not stop God. God is changing us. He will change us. Like Judah, from sin-denying people filled with hate to sin-knowing and repenting from people, willing to give ourselves up for others. God is doing that change. God will do it. So let's get with that program. And our reluctance, resistance, exhaustion will fall by the wayside. And this story is going to help. The biggest change in this passage, though, comes not actually with Judah, but with Joseph. And this scene that we had read just now has real kind of Hollywood vibes to it. There's a reconciliation of old hatreds. That's a big Hollywood thing. And there's uh, elaborate displays of male emotion. That's a big Hollywood thing. And old wounds are healed and families are restored out of poverty. We pick up the action in verse 1. And then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it too. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. He blurts it out in amidst a mass of tears, and who can blame him? Years in a foreign land, in prison, in trouble, then in charge, which also may have been so lonely, as lonely as prison, because he's now the prime minister, but he can't tell his brothers about it because he's so distant from them all those years of hurt now though are undone by the speech of your once pretty lousy older brother judah you can't blame joseph for crying but they are terrified when they find out who it is they can't speak they're 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 dumbstruck because well wait a minute you were dead what we what the the, where the slave what who can blame them 
They thought they were killers, that they'd sold them to slavery. Joseph was very clear, though. This has all happened, not just by your hand, but by God. The slavery, the prison, the famine was all to bring this whole family to safety. Have a look at verse 5. Do not be distressed, Joseph tells them, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me to preserve life, to save life. That's why I'm here. Once again, just as a little aside, shows that only now can Joseph look back and see that God, God doesn't give guidance to the future so much as he does guidance as we look back at the past. If we spend our whole lives, imagine Joseph and all the brothers wondering, uh, God, God, can you give some guidance? They never would have done anything, but they were able to live in the present knowing that as they look back, God does guidance. He has guided them to this point in the past. So he, he will guide them in the future, even if he doesn't necessarily give guidance. He does it. And our job now is to trust him in the present that all things will work out to save those, to do, to do good to those who love him. Well, Joseph quickly turns the topic to his beloved father. Uh, He says, return quickly to your father and tell him, your son Joseph says this, come down, see me without delay. We'll live in the region of Goshen. You'll be near me, you, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your cattle, all your possessions. Joseph, a a lord in Egypt, is now going to save the whole Israel family, the whole bunch of Israelites. He urges all the family, come join me in this precious land. There's going to be five more years of famine. Come join me. I'll look after you, he says. I'll save you. And then the section ends with more weeping, more crying, more sobbing in verse 15 and, uh, 14 and 15 as they weep on each other's necks and the stringed instruments in the orchestra would play and the soundtrack to the movie would swell and the credits would roll as they embrace. There's quite a change to Joseph. And it all crescendos here. Joseph goes from favorite son with a fancy coat to the, uh, the son that Jacob cared most about to death down a dwell, to being in the hands of powerful men, to rising to be Lord of many who saves many. It reminds us and has echoes in some ways in a small way of the prodigal son. He kind of goes away, is in a, is in a pit, in a sty, and, and then he ends up back at, with his father somehow at a feast. But of course, echoes greater than that from Joseph to Jesus We've had Jacob and Judah and Joseph, now the final J, Jesus. Jesus, the favorite son of God, the only son of God, the only begotten son of God, who who, who God the Father cares about the most, goes to death, to being at the hands of powerful men, to rising, to being Lord of many and saving many. Both Joseph and Jesus reveal who they really are to 11 brothers, 11 close companions who are then dumbstruck and dumbfound and terrified in disbelief. There's such parallels there that if this was a Hollywood movie, the J- Joseph movie and the Jesus movie, the, the Jesus movie would get hacked apart by the critics because it's just, hey, look, you're just redoing the plot from before. This isn't a sequel, it's just a redo. And the parallels are there. The time, it would have looked like loss and sadness and mistakes and God being out of control. That's what it often looks like in our lives as we look back. But 
God knows what he is doing. The change to Judah, who is so transformed, was caused by the changes to Joseph. And so for us, the changes to us are caused by the changes to Jesus. What is going to keep changing us, keep growing us? It's going to be marveling at the changes that happen to Jesus for our good to save us. That will get us to change, to keep us changing, to make us change if we just keep looking at Jesus. That will give us the change we need. Hello, the Bible is not about This story makes it very clear. The Bible's not about a bunch of good people that God's nice to, but a bunch of bad people that God is good to and who he changes. And so maybe change isn't so bad after all.